0: Okay, good evening. How are you guys doing? Good evening. This evening we continue in our series of studies in First Peter. We're making our way through this book. Uh, this evening we are in First Peter chapter 3, and in verse 18, we sort of gradually in our last study transitioned from the theme of submission in Christ to sacrifice, or excuse me, suffering in Christ, uh, we started with salvation in Christ, and then we made our way to submission in Christ, and then last week we sort of gradually transitioned into the subject of suffering for Christ. So that's where we are, and, and one of the things uh, we are going to see this evening is that uh, Christ left an example, an example of suffering, and that's what we're really going to focus in on as we uh, continue. We're going we're gonna to be encouraged to follow that example. We'll start that next week, but For this evening, we're just going to look at the example of Christ's suffering. And uh, one of the great things about a Good Friday service, or maybe watching The Passion of the Christ, one of the great things about that is that you really get to contemplate and meditate on Christ's suffering. Now, I'm going to be honest, I don't always enjoy that. Uh, It's emotional. And if you see Christ's suffering depicted or read about it or meditate on it, it's disturbing, and it should be. It should be. I, I don't like to see suffering at all, but it, but if I see someone suffering for making their own mistakes, at least I can say, well, they asked for it. But when I see Christ's suffering depicted or, or, or meditate on it, I think to myself, you know, Christ did nothing sinful, nothing to deserve that suffering. He did it for us. and We deserve suffering, but he doesn't. So this evening we're going to look at Christ's example of suffering, a couple of other um somewhat interesting topics, but before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study in advance, for being together and being in your word, and uh, we pray for all those who, again, are either distancing or isolating because of sickness or those who are dealing with COVID and those that can't be with us, but we're so thankful that everyone who is here this evening made it out, and then we just want to take the time to thank you for your continued blessing on our lives, your health, your provision, and all that you're doing in and through this church and in our lives. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start first by looking at just the very first half of the first verse, uh, verse 18, chapter 3, 1 Peter, verse 18. It's a, a wonderful uh, sentence. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I just love that. It has almost a poetic feel when you say it. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There's so much in that, and I, and I suppose you could probably preach a whole sermon just on the, the truths that are contained in that half a verse, but it really gets to the purpose and the power of the crucifixion. The purpose and the power of the crucifixion. Now, first of all, he died to save us. Amen? He died to save us from our sins, and, but he also died to save all mankind. Not just you and me, just, not just us personally, but all mankind can be saved because of that sacrifice. And, and it's important to know that. He died for sins once for all. There's no one who can't be forgiven, who is alive right now, who cries out to Christ for forgiveness. And notice, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now, there is no additional sacrifice necessary for our salvation. I don't know why, but for some reason, very weird people like to add to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. They seem to feel that it makes them feel better if they sort of add to it. It's kind of like you get invited out to lunch or out to dinner and someone picks up the tab and you say, hey, can I, can I get the tip? You, you just you got to put a little in there. You're not going to pay for it, but you got to feel like you did something, right? We take that approach to God's grace. Just get into the habit of accepting the truth that God graciously saved you from your sins and there need not be any more sacrifice for sin. Amen oh, that's humbling, Pastor Tim. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's humbling. But the grace of God will transform your life. Trying to please God in order to be saved will make you miserable because you can't do it. But pleasing God because you're saved, well, that's a joyous and joyful experience. Yes. So this is very important. You have to get this right. But there are some people that just can't handle that, that there's no additional sacrifice necessary for our salvation. He died that all may come to salvation, even those that would reject him. But they have to receive him because to as many as received him, to, to those that believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the children of God, according to John 1.12. So that's very important to just, just get that in your mind and in your heart now. See, he was willing to suffer for us in order to save us. That's the contemplation now. He was willing to do this to save us. And then you come along and say, well, that's great, but I'm going to add a little bit to it. No, 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 that's not how it works. That's not grace. He is righteous. Notice the righteous for the unrighteous. He is righteous, yet he suffered and died. We're unrighteous. We are the unrighteous. And yet we live. We live. Now, this is an interesting quote. Only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. Only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. That's how great the grace of God is. Only forgiveness without reason. Because there's no reason that we should be forgiven. We, we really have no excuse for our sins. But only forgiveness without reason can match sin without excuse. This is only possible because Christ was willing to suffer for doing good. And that's the theme here. And he starts with that example, and then he's going to encourage the suffering church to continue to suffer for doing the right thing. Now, he was willing to die in order to bring sinful man to a holy God, to bring you to God. That's the whole point of Christ's crucifixion, to bring you to God. So when you refuse to come to God and you reject the gospel of grace or you think that you need to add to it, at that point you're looking at that horrible suffering he endured and the sacrifice he made for each and every one of us, for all of us, and you're saying, you know, I'm just really not interested. I'm not really interested in being right with God. I I know you died and gave it all to Bring me closer, but I'm just really not interested. And you can imagine why that is just a really horrible response to the grace of God. And yet, that's what it means to reject God's grace. To fall from grace is to think you need to do it yourself, and you don't. It's all been done. You need to simply respond by faith to the grace of God. Now, there are a couple of words for bring used in the Bible. First, we'll talk about the Hebrew word, which isn't used here in the New Testament, but the Hebrew word for bring implies a priestly access to God's holy presence. It's used in Exodus. The idea is that the priest brings you into the presence of God. Now, of course, Jesus is our great high priest, amen? Now, the Greek word, which is used here by Peter, it implies access by God's grace, Paul uses it in Romans and Ephesians. That idea of being able to be brought into the presence of God by God's grace, that's what it means when it says to bring you to God. You know, in the ancient throne room, in the place where the king would issue judgment and meet with people, there was an official, and the title was roughly translated the bringer, the bringer. And it really was the person who was the introducer to the king. And he was the one that granted access to the king. He was the gatekeeper, if you will. He was the one that brought you to the king. And that's the word that we use here, the bringer. Christ brought you, brings you into the presence of God. He's the one that introduces you to God the Father. And that's the word that Peter chose to use. He grants us access to God the Father. So all of that in just half a verse. It's just amazing, one sentence. But that's really the purpose and the power of the crucifixion. Know that Christ died on the cross for your sins to bring you. He was righteous. He he died for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about, having talked about the crucifixion, Peter now begins to talk about the pre-resurrection ministry of Christ. The pre-resurrection ministry of Christ. That is, Christ had a ministry and a mission that started when he died on the cross and ended when he rose from the dead. And Peter now begins to talk about that. And I want to go into a little detail here because there are a lot of people that are a little confused about this. They read that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison, and they don't understand, first of all, why Peter's even mentioning this. And then they start to think, well, can you be saved in hell after you die? You know, Did Christ go to Hades, the place of the dead, Sheol, and start preaching the gospel to people? Listen, if you were in Hades, you'd get saved. I don't think anybody would say, nah, it's a little hot down here, but you know what? This is fine. I'm okay. I can get by for the eternity in torment. No, that's not at all what's being said. So I want to go through this. I want to give you an understanding of it, and it requires us looking at some of the things that Peter was aware of and that others would have been aware of uh, that took place throughout the history of mankind. So let us it's kind of a big topic, and you need to look at the whole picture to understand what's going on here. But let's look, first of all, at verses, latter part of verse 18 through verse 20. That's all we're going to look at for right now. After saying, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God, he goes on to say, he was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Now, understand, he's not talking about the resurrection yet. He was made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, that is, through the flood. Okay? He's going to take that figure or that picture and go a little further with it in just a minute. But for now, let's just stop right there and let's recognize that he was made alive by the Spirit after he rose from the dead. But Christ didn't disappear or cease to exist after his Spirit left his body. His body stayed behind. His body was on the cross. They took the body down. They buried the body for three days and three nights. Was Christ? in oblivion? Was he dead spiritually? Actually, no. He was very much alive spiritually. The way that all of us are alive spiritually, after we die, our bodies stay behind, but our spirits live on. Amen? So, so that's part of it. And then, of course, he receives a resurrected body three days later, and we'll talk some about that as well. But for now, let's just stop a moment and recognize that in addition to the power and the purpose of the crucifixion, there was, and we see it depicted here, a pre-resurrection ministry of Christ. Now, we don't know a whole lot about it, but this is what Peter tells us. He died physically on the cross and physically rose again three after three days and three nights. If you read the scriptures in Romans, we learn that the Holy Spirit was responsible for Jesus's resurrection. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says it here as well, that the Spirit was responsible because it goes... And to say he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, was involved in Christ's resurrection. But if you read Acts chapter 2, which we studied recently on a Sunday morning, we also learn that the Father was responsible for Jesus' resurrection. God the Father, God the Spirit. But you know something? In John's Gospel, Jesus said something very interesting. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life, and I will take it up again. So there, God the Son says that he's responsible for raising himself. How is that possible? How is it possible that God the Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son all are responsible for Jesus being raised from the dead? Because they're three in one. And here you have an example of the Trinity working in concert, And uh, they're in agreement. They're three persons, but it's one God. So the Father, Son, and Spirit all responsible for Christ's resurrection as a man. So he was responsible himself for his resurrection in addition to the Spirit of the Father. But he was alive spiritually immediately after his physical death on the cross. You shouldn't think of Jesus being sort of in this sleep or in this slumber and like, you know, then he woke up on, uh, you know, Resurrection Sunday that would be wrong. And Peter makes this clear. Paul talks about it as well. You see, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus's spirit to go to the spiritual prison known as Hades. Now, understand something. We sometimes talk about hell as the lake of fire. That's a place of eternal torment. But the Jews had a place that they referred to called Sheol, and the Greeks called it Hades. It was the place of the dead. And it was Hades, not really hell, but a lot of people refer to it as hell. And because there's a Hades, which ultimately, those who go to Hades, uh, who are wicked, ultimately end up in hell, this gave rise to the thinking in medieval times of purgatory. You understand uh, there was this idea that you would go to a place, but that wasn 't your final destination, and that somehow you could be prayed out of it. Now, the idea of being prayed out of it was the Catholic Church Roman Catholic Church coming up with a way to raise money. Uh, they said that if you gave them money, they would pray, and, and this loved one that went to Hades would be prayed out of Hades and would go maybe into limbo or and so they called it purgatory, but that was a money making scheme the, the truth of the, of, of the of what the scripture says, is that there is a place called Hades, the place of the dead. And those that go there today are those waiting to be judged for eternity. As a Christian, you won't go to Hades if you die tomorrow. We go directly. To be absent in body is to be present with the Lord. But before Christ rose from the dead, there was a place, and Jesus talked about it in Luke's gospel, called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. And it was the place in Hades called uh, the place of the righteous, Abraham's side. And so understand that, and it's described by Jesus in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 16. So that's a little homework if you're interested in reading that. Uh, Chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And Jesus describes it as a place that's divided into two sections. And you have the righteous not being tormented, but waiting... And then you had those who were wicked, like the rich man. Lazarus was with Abraham, but the rich man was in another section where it was hot and he was being tormented. So there's a lot about what happens after you die that we don't understand. And things have changed since Christ's resurrection for the righteous. But now I want to back up a minute and just say that what we're being told here, and this is in our creeds, and this is in the Bible, And Jesus said it was true that when he died, he would descend into Hades for three days and three nights, and then he would rise again. So what was going on during that time? Well, Peter gives us some of the information here, and then later on, we'll see some more of the information. But for now, we're going to talk about part of it that uh, that applies to the suffering that the Christians were going through in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey at this time. So the Spirit empowered Jesus to go to this spiritual prison known as Hades. As I've said, the Jews called it Sheol, and this is consistent with what Jesus said concerning the sign of Jonah, which I've already mentioned, that he would descend into the heart of the earth. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is another way of describing Hades. As I've said, he referred to this place as Abraham's side, that is the place for the righteous. And don't think that Jesus went to a place of torment. That's not at all what happened. He, he suffered. It was finished on the cross. Amen? Any suffering he endured in this world, he suffered before he died. When he died and gave up his spirit, his spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, went to this place of Hades, and he did not go to the place of suffering to be tormented another three days before he was resurrected. There's some people that teach that. Why? I don't know. But It's wrong. But he did go there with a message for those who were suffering. He went there, and we'll see next week, with a message for those that were waiting. But tonight we're just going to look at what was the message to those that were suffering. Because I want to read it again. It says, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who what? Disobeyed. These aren't the righteous waiting for Christ to come. Uh, Who disobeyed long ago notice, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So we're talking about people that rejected the way of salvation, rejected God, had disobeyed God, and were now being tormented in Hades. What did he have to say to them? Why did he go there? Well, we'll see in a minute. Paul also taught that Jesus had descended into Hades. This is talked about in the Psalms, but Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 4. He descended to set the captives free. But this isn't the group of people we're talking about tonight. In fact, David and Job talked about this. He wouldn't leave his soul in Sheol. Uh, They knew the day would come when Christ would come and free them from this place of waiting for the righteous. But while he was there, he preached. Now, the word preach doesn't always mean to preach the gospel. It simply means to proclaim, to proclaim. So he went there to say something. Now, I want you to back up a minute. Don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. Why are we in this section of 1 Peter? Peter is writing to suffering saints who he's going to talk to them about following the example of Christ's suffering. But he's talking about Christ's suffering so that they can follow that example. He's trying to encourage them that those individuals who are making their lives miserable would be judged that the day would come where Christ would intervene. So keep that in mind. This is about suffering in Christ. That's the context of this section. He doesn't just break into a new context. This is what he's talking about. And Paul taught this, and of course we see Peter teaching this, that while he was there, he preached in the Spirit's power to the spirits who were imprisoned there. Now, who are these imprisoned spirits to whom Jesus preached? This is what we're told They were the spirits of beings that disobeyed God and drowned in the flood. That we're told. No doubt about it. Those that tried God's patience while Noah was building the ark. Those that rejected Noah's preaching. Why single out these individuals? Well, I think you'll see, if you understand what was really going on here, it makes perfect sense why he singles out these individuals and why Christ went to Hades and Proclaimed a message of victory, very important message of victory. Now, while he was there, he preached this to these imprisoned spirits. We've identified them already. Those beings that disobeyed God, drowned in the flood, tried God's patience while Noah was building the ark, and rejected Noah's preaching, according to Hebrews. They rejected what Noah had to say. But what did Jesus preach? It couldn't have been the gospel, right? Are you with me? Does that make any sense whatsoever? No appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment. I don't, I don't think he went there to save them. And that's not at all what the scripture is saying. There is a message. It doesn't make sense that he preached the gospel to them. The righteous at Abraham's side already believed by faith. They didn't need to hear the gospel. The unrighteous who were suffering, those captives who were in prison, they had already rejected God's grace. So what is this message? Let me tell you. He preached a proclamation to them. A proclamation of victory over death itself. The victory of death over death. Where is your sting, Paul says. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. And Christ said to those who rejected the gospel, death has been swallowed up in victory. You see, he was victorious over sin and death. And that message was was proclaimed by Christ. Christ. It was a proclamation of freedom for the righteous captives, but it was a proclamation of eternal judgment for those that rejected God. That's, that, that's kind of the gospel today, except that now you can change your mind if you're rejecting Christ. You can say, well, you know, I, I want to receive Christ, but they did not have that option. But it's still a proclamation, just the same. Now, the next logical question, okay, we've already answered who who are these imprisoned spirits and why did Jesus preach to them? That makes sense. But the next part is a little hard to ascertain. It's a little hard to figure out. Why did Peter single out just this group of unrighteous imprisoned spirits? Because he's he's, he's narrowing it down. He's not saying all those in Hades. He's narrowing down specifically to those who were disobeying God during the time of the flood and drowned in the flood, who rejected Noah's preaching. Now, I want you to see that there were other disobedient spirits imprisoned in Hades at this time. What do I mean? Well, there were the spirits of those that had died prior to the days of Noah. I could think of someone like Cain. There were also the spirits of those that had died after the flood. But he's not talking to them. This proclamation in particular is directed to a, a subset of those unrighteous dead in Hades waiting for God's judgment. Why? In order to answer that question, you have to understand a little bit about demons and fallen angels. And I'm going to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Because once you begin to understand the origin of demons and the interaction of fallen angels, you'll understand that this group of people that Christ proclaimed victory over death to were those individuals who were responsible for the demonic world. The very demons, the very wickedness that at that time were inspiring people to persecute Christians in Asia Minor or modern Turkey. See, what he's saying to these suffering Christians is Christ was victorious over them, and you will be victorious over them as well. So I'm going to break this down for you, because I know that's a, that may seem like a reach to some of you guys, but let's, uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it, and then we'll, we'll break it down. Here's what the Bible teaches in Genesis. When men began to increase in number on the earth... And daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that is the Benai Elohim. It's a phrase used in the book of Job. It refers to angels and only to angels. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men, the that that's, the, that's women, okay, the daughters of men, they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. It would be 120 years before the flood came, basically. And the Nephilim were on the earth, or the fallen ones were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were heroes of old, men of renown. You know, a lot of people look at that and they try to explain away what took place in Genesis chapter 6, but in Genesis chapter 6, we're actually given an understanding of a lot of things that are talked about and continue to be talked about throughout the world history. Let's break this down. Okay, let's talk about the origin of demons and fallen angels. Now, before the flood, this is what we're told, certain angels came to earth, cohabitated with women, and had children with them. Again, sons of God, ben Elohim, daughters of men, bathadam. Those words in Hebrew describe specifically angels and human women. Mankind's judgment for this sin, in particular, was the flood, which came 120 years later. People don't stop and think, why did God wipe out all mankind in the flood? when you think it through, things must have been pretty bad. We're told that the thoughts of man were evil continually. Something happened. Mankind actually began to be interbred with angels. That's what Genesis 6 tells us. I know this sounds like fantasy or sci-fi, right? Sounds kind of weird. And some people can't handle this, so they explain it away, but that's what the word says. And actually, we'll see it's talked about in Revelation. It's talked about in Second Peter. It's talked about in Jude. Uh, so it's not only one place in the Bible that this is talked about. But it's interesting because what happened here is they were so corrupted. Human beings had become so corrupted that the flood came and wiped them all out, except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. And that's what we're told. That's what Peter's talking about. Again, why would he be talking about this to suffering saints? To show them that Christ is victorious over demons. But we'll see that in a minute. Now, the Nephilim are mentioned, and a lot of people like to talk about this. Books have been written, but it means fallen ones, the fallen ones. They were on the earth before the flood. These creatures were the unholy offspring of fallen angels and mankind. Now, angels, they can take on, obviously, they can take on human form, and they did. And don't ask me to explain the birds and the bees about this. I can't. But I can tell you that somehow they were able to take on a human form, leave their habitation, and actually be able to breed with human beings. So these creatures, the Nephilim or the fallen ones, were the unholy offspring of fallen angels and mankind. They they lived during those 120 years and eventually died in the flood. Could that be why he's singling out this group of people? Now, one of the things I like to look at, I'm I'm a student of history, I love history, and as mighty heroes were told, they were mighty heroes, they provide the true source of all of the ancient myths. When you read about Hercules, he was half man, half God. Perseus, when you read the Greek myths, when you read Norse myths, you read just about any mythos of ancient cultures, and they incorporate these heroes who had super strength and you know they and we've taken that way of thinking and now we have comic books and Marvel and DC and all of what are all of these things? These are all based in this theory that man can be more than he is. X-Men. All of this stuff, it, it, it calls back to a time where there were mighty heroes on the earth, or you don't believe what the Bible says, because that's what the Bible says, men of renown. And there were these demigods, if you, if you want to call them that. That's, that's what literature might call them. And they were, quite frankly, what caused people to write stories in the Greek and Roman myths and other mythos, about these sort of demigods and these, these you know superhuman type beings. And and that way of thinking has made its way all the way into modern culture. And if you don't think so, look at how many movies are released each year that talk about supermen and women. Mutants or uh, you know superheroes. I mean, within us there is this desire to be more than we are. And the Greek myths were based on actual history. Now, I'm not saying that everything they wrote was true, but it was based on a truth that ultimately, over time, became corrupted. But these stories had a, they had, they had a source, and we see what that source was. They provide the true source of all the ancient myths. Now, the spirits of the Nephilim, think about this with me, they drown in the flood because they're still mortal, Even though they may be half mortal, they're still mortal. And and you can see why the flood would wipe them out, right? God had to take a heavy hammer. So they're all wiped out. The spirits of the Nephilim, we don't know how they were different than the spirit of men. But we do know this. They may not have been restricted to Hades or Sheol. Uh, Remember when Jesus walked the earth, and even before that, that there were demons that inhabited people. There were disembodied spirits, and Jesus would cast them out, right? And think about this with me. This could this could account for the origin of disembodied spirits, evil, evil spirits, uh, ghosts. Where do you think those things come from? Where do you think the legends of ghosts and ghouls and all that kind of stuff, where do you think that comes from? Well, because demons actually do exist. I think you know. You can't believe in God and his word and say, wow, demons don't exist. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus cast out demons. Demons were cast out in the early church. Now, I'm not a ghostbuster. Who are you going to call? Not me. I'm not interested in doing any of that stuff, but I can tell you what the Bible teaches about these things. So you have the, the sort of the true source for the, uh, the heroes of old, and now you have a true source for ghouls and, and, and ghosts, which, why does every single culture have these things on earth? Because there's some true source. It doesn't mean everything you read about it, you know, vampires and all that stuff. It doesn't mean that's all true. It just means that there's a true source that people used as inspiration to write things about the past and stories and myths. So now you have this, 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 this idea of demons. Now, I believe, again, I can't prove it. I'm not going to try to prove it. But these may be the demons that continue to influence mankind even today. These disembodied spirits of the Nephilim that died in the flood. It makes sense. After all, what is the one distinguishing characteristic about demons in both the Old and New Testaments? They have a strong desire to possess a physical body. Well, why? Because their physical body drowned in the flood. So there's a little bit of speculation on my part here. I'm just sharing with you what I read when I read the scriptures. And, you know, it's not a matter of salvation. You don't have to believe this. Some people don't like this explanation, but that's what I see. I believe, though, it makes perfect sense because Peter singled out these evil spirits. They were evil spirits. And he singled them out. Not other people, just those that died during the flood, which would be the Nephilim, which would be the fallen ones, which would be these heroes of renown, which could easily be and logically explains the source of of demons, the origin of demons. Now you might be saying, well, I thought demons were fallen angels. Why? Where does it say in the Bible that demons are fallen angels? When you read about demons, they're always disembodied spirits that look to control or possess a body. Fallen angels don't need to do that. In fact, when we see fallen angels, they're, they're in chains. And by the way, that's the source of the titans in ancient Greek mythology. They're, when you read about titans, they're held in Tartarus. When Peter talks about it in 2 Peter, he talks about um, the fallen angels, who again, I, I think the Greeks refer to them as titans, in Tartarus. He actually uses the very same Greek word used once in the entire New Testament. So you can see how the Greek concepts came from the truth, even though they've been corrupted. So I think when you look at all this, you realize, well, why would Peter be talking about, why is he even bringing this up? Again, remember, He's singling out these evil spirits, given their hatred toward mankind, and he knows, and they know, those that are suffering, that they're suffering because of the influence of evil spirits working in the lives of men. After all, why is it, have you ever stopped to think about it, why is it the people who reject Christ hate Jesus so much and hate his church just as much and want to destroy his church why, why are the wicked people in the world today? What is their one thing? They hate us. By the way, it's interesting to me that they can call us, literally call us haters. They can call us a hate organization. But I just read recently where someone called BLM a hate organization and they lost their job. Is it, I mean, isn't that interesting? Do you not see what's going on here? Open your eyes. The demonic influence behind this world today hates Christ and his church. And they hated Christ and his church in the first century. Peter is writing to a group of people who are being persecuted by people who are demonically inspired. So what is he telling them? When Christ descended into Hades, he proclaimed victory over those same demonic spirits that were giving so much trouble to Christ's church in the first century. So I think it makes sense why he would bring it up. That's a long explanation and a lot of information. It it suffices to say, though, that when Christ died, he descended into the heart of the earth and preached a message of victory over a specific group of wicked, evil spirits. And I think if you connect the dots here, you'll see why. Okay. Listen, demons today and then direct men to speak maliciously against us, to slander us. They're the true source of... uh, our unrighteous suffering, and our persecution. You know that. Because if you reject Christ, you're open to Satan and his influence and demonic influence. And this message would have greatly encouraged, it encourages me, but it would have greatly encouraged those saints in their suffering. And that's what Peter was trying to do. They, as well, would soon proclaim victory over their enemies, just as Christ did. And we will as well. Amen? Amen. Okay, now, if that wasn't controversial enough, Peter now says something that has caused other very controversial people to come along and say, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And there are some people that read this next verse and come up with a theological construct, uh, baptismal regeneration. One verse mentioned here, they take it out of context, they run with it, and they come up with this idea, you see... We told you you couldn't be saved by grace alone. you got to be baptized. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. Now, that gives them a lock on baptizing you and controlling who gets saved. Now, this is very interesting to me because there are some cults that quote this verse, and they use it to control people. But what's amazing to me, do you remember the first half of the first verse of this section? Do you remember what it said? It said... Nothing about being water baptized. Um, Back in our text here, it says, um, for Christ died for sins once for all. Doesn't say anything about once for all, but you got to still get baptized. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He's the one that brings us to God. Water baptism doesn't bring you to God. Receiving communion doesn't bring you to God. Christ brings you to God. These things we do in remembrance of God Remembrance of Jesus Christ, that's as far as communion. And baptism we do in obedience to his word as an outward sign of what's already taken place on the inside. Or have you forgotten the thief on the cross who was told, this day you will be with me in paradise? But wait a minute. Christ didn't go into heaven for three days and three nights. How could he say, this day you'll be with me in paradise? Paradise is a Greek word, paradisio. It's what the Greeks used to describe the place of the righteous dead. So he's saying, today you're going to be with me in Abraham's bosom. That part we talked about where the righteous were waiting for Christ. Today that's, you're going to be with me there. Three days later, of course, they ascended into heaven and he set the captives free. So even the Greek words and the Greek concepts all make sense if you lay it out. So you have this situation where you know, Christ descends into the heart of the earth. The, the, the thief on the cross, who by the way wasn't baptized, goes with him into paradise and then He leads captivity in his train, as as the scriptures say. So it all makes sense. But how could the thief on the cross have been saved? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Christ says, today you'll be with me in paradise. How could any of that happen? He wasn't water baptized. Wait a minute. See, that construct of baptismal regeneration is false. And it adds to the grace of God. And you can't add to the grace of God, because the grace of God is all sufficient. Can I hear an amen? So I want to say that up front, but you know, there are just people that find a half a verse, run with it, and love to be contentious. They're usually a little ignorant and contentious, and they want to start trouble with a half a verse. But there's a lot of that in Peter if you're not careful, but let's move on. I want to talk to you about the true purpose and power of water baptism. It's actually not that complicated, and what's really funny is you actually get to the last verse of this section, and it tells you precisely how we're saved. And it's not through water baptism. But if you just isolate words, you might get a little confused. So here's what we read. Remember he said when he was talking about the flood, Peter said, in it, that is in the ark, right? And he said, uh, Noah, um, that these spirits had disobeyed in verse 20, long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. He goes on to say, in it, that is the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Of course, through water they were saved, the water came. And then Peter uses an analogy, and he uses the water, and he transitions on that point, he pivots to baptism, which also uses water. That's the only thing the flood and baptism have in common, that water's involved. But he uses that as sort of an analogy to jump to the next topic or next thought. He says it this way: He says, In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And, and he tells us right up front, he's, he's using symbolism, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. So people look at that and they say, You see, baptism saves you. It doesn't matter that we just read in verse 18 that Christ saves us. But now they, you know, they take that out of context and say, well, see, baptism saves you. You don't need Christ. You just baptize yourself and you'll be saved. That's the thought. And it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Anyway, he says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you. Talking about baptism. Notice this. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So is it the water that saves you or the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you read this section, you see that the context is clear. Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves you. Amen? Water is a symbol. He uses water baptism. He uses the flood. He says it symbolizes water baptism. Water baptism itself is a pledge. It's not what saves you. It points to what saves you. Let me break it down for you. Baptism is symbolized by the flood. Noah and his family were saved through the flood, but they were in the ark, right? We're saved through baptism, but in Christ. Think about it. Was it the flood that saved them or was it the ark? Is it water baptism that saves you or is it Christ? See, if you follow the symbolism, it logically explains itself. Baptism is symbolized by the flood. Baptism saves us through the cleansing of our conscience. That's what happens here. The world was renewed through the flood, and our minds are renewed through baptism in Christ. It's all symbolism. Baptism is described here as a pledge in response to God's terms of salvation in Christ. It's your response. See, what baptism is, is your response. It's your pledge to the truth of Christ's salvation. It's how you respond to that truth. It's the action you take in response to the truth. In and of itself, you can't save yourself, and water can't save you. Did you know that every ancient contract required a person to to be questioned and to give an answer before witnesses? Every ancient contract, they had to make a pledge The contract was only valid if the signer verbally pledged to accept the terms. That's the language that Peter's using, saying they had to pledge, they had to respond. Baptism is your response to Christ's salvation. It's not you being saved, and that's where the contentious people who look at baptismal regeneration go wrong. Now, baptism is a symbol of the resurrection. If you've ever been with us down the shore, down the Jersey Shore in the summer, uh, when we do our baptism, you'll know it's a symbol. Just like all of what Peter's talking about here, it's a symbol of the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. We're dead to sin, which refers to his crucifixion. And by the way, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I always read this when we do baptisms. We're dead to sin. uh, we, We associate with Christ's death because we're dead in sin. And grace or forgiveness is no excuse to live in sin. But water baptism shows outwardly what has happened to us inwardly. The old life, the flesh, is buried with Christ, and the new life, the Spirit, is resurrected in Christ. So the symbol of the water going in the water and coming out speaks of Christ's death. We're buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. Again, it's symbolism. And we're alive in Christ. We're not only dead to sin, we're alive in Christ, his resurrection. Our old life, the flesh, has been rendered powerless in Christ. Rendered powerless, that's the language that's used. And our new life, the Spirit, has been empowered in Christ. And that's what water baptism symbolizes. Why do people get so weird? Look at communion. With transubstantiation, they tried to turn communion, which is a remembrance of Christ's body and blood, into the actual body and blood of Christ? Where'd they come up with that? I'll tell you where they came up with that. It's paganism. It comes from Romanism, and it was introduced into Christianity when Christianity was hijacked by Rome. It's paganism, this idea of the body. and the, it, 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 it. Like, somehow the matzah becomes the body of Christ. Now, if that happened at the last summer, why was Christ's body and his blood still there, but these elements, like, it just doesn't even make any sense. And yet people buy into this stuff. Try to argue with somebody who buys into this. Oh, no, 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 no and it's illogical, and it's not scriptural. And the idea that water baptism saves you is just as illogical and just as unscriptural. So baptism does save us in the sense that it's a part of the process. It saves us, but it saves us through the power of Christ's resurrection. It symbolizes what Christ did to save us. In and of itself, you can't save yourself by being baptized. Christ saved you, Christ saved you, baptism symbolizes his salvation. Is everyone with me? Can I hear a big amen? All right, good. That's one of those things you you hate to even have to talk about because it's so silly, but the water just symbolizes our salvation in Christ. Christ's death and resurrection accomplished that salvation for you, for me, for all of us. Okay, now we close it out in verse 22 uh, because he goes on to say, and actually I'm going to back up a little bit. This water symbolizes baptism in verse 20, when the now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to say, and notice that, how are you saved? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay, remember this is an example of Christ's suffering, but it also leads to Christ's victory over death ascension into heaven, and authority over all the universe. This now becomes the post-resurrection ministry of Christ. We talked about the pre-resurrection, now we're talking about post-resurrection. Christ ascended into heaven immediately after his resurrection. We know this. He first led the righteous captives into the presence of God in heaven. He then appeared to his disciples over a period of roughly 40 days. He then sat at the Rather's right hand. We're told that in the New Testament. And Christ is now enthroned in heaven with the entire spiritual realm in submission to him. This includes the fallen angels that spawned the Nephilim, it includes those demonic spirits that Peter mentioned earlier. There is no spiritual being that can defy his authority over the universe. None. Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf right now, according to Hebrews 7.25. He is our gracious, gracious intercessor before Almighty God, and he will never be replaced. He has, does, and will always intercede on our behalf. Now, why did Peter go to such great lengths to describe the ministry of Christ from his crucifixion to his resurrection to his intercession Because the next thing that happens is Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that would have been incredibly encouraging to a group of Christians who were suffering on earth, the result of demonically inspired human beings. When you look at the context, it becomes pretty obvious what Peter's talking about. I know that's a lot. That's a lot of information. I've given you a little homework. You can check out Genesis 6. You can check out uh, Romans 6. Uh, You can check out the scriptures that I referred to. And decide for yourself. But I just wanted to present to you what Peter said when he said, consider Christ's suffering. That's what he's saying. Consider Christ's suffering. What did it accomplish? It accomplished everything. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the truth of the creeds. That is, that you died on a cross for our sins and that you rose again on the third day you ascended into the presence of God and sit at the right hand of God the Father and ever live to make intercession on our behalf and are coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is incredibly encouraging to anyone who's suffering, to us as well today. We pray that you'd encourage us to look up for our redemption draws near. We await the blessed hope of your appearing, Lord, because this world is shot. The people in it in our culture are just demonically inspired with hate. The things they believe, the the things they do, the things they think, they don't think. I can only conclude that they're demonically inspired, that they've given themselves over to the spirit of Antichrist and, and and, and have been surrendered to a reprobate mind. How else could they believe some of the things that they say? And unfortunately, it includes more than half of our government And it can be really discouraging at times. Until we stop and realize that you descended into the heart of the earth and preached to those demons and told them flat out, you have been victorious over them, over death, over all the world, all the universe. And we know, as what Peter said here at the end of this section, that you're seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.